And let's get started. Welcome to the Slim Nation. My name is James Slim Overton, and we hope you enjoy the program today. We have our guest, Dr. Ernestine Duncan. She is a professor of professor of psychology at, at NSU, Norfolk State University. Behold the green and gold. Behold. <laughs> And, uh, of course, she is a recurring guest, and she hasn't been on for a while, but uh, she is one of our recurring guests that come on and talk about mainly, we talk about mental health and other psychological uh, issues. <laughs> but today we're going to talk, since this is the last day of September, and September was National Suicide Prevention Month, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, suicide uh, on the educational level, as far as uh, our students and elementary up up until college. Good morning, uh, Dr. Duncan. How are you? I'm good this morning. How are you? I'm fine, and welcome back. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Okay. We're going to get into this uh, suicide issue, and let's start with the, uh, on the college level. Um, you know, I, I guess it's a lot of pressure for students, especially freshmen, attending college for the first time, and those pressures, some of them, uh, our extension from home and some are newly created once they get there with the pressures uh, of uh, doing well or being away from home the first time and uh, depression might set in and with depression sometimes you have those suicidal tendencies uh, what are the uh, stats saying you know I noticed there's a rise in uh, suicidal behavior I'll put it that way and actual suicides uh, since 1950, I mean, triple. Triple. So um, what we think is that um, students are coming to college already with a mental health history. Um, if I talk to Dr. Vanessa Jenkins at Norfolk State, she says that the number of students who come in with the diagnosis of depression or anxiety, attention deficit disorder, bipolar disorder, that number has increased significantly and is consistent with what we see across the country. So students are coming to college already with a mental health history and then they are faced with the stresses, as you mentioned, being away from home for the first time, the demands of college, the peer pressure, all of the things that typically affect college students. But when you put that with a previous mental health history, it leaves these students especially vulnerable to um, suicidal attempts and actual suicides. Well, and that's kind of alarming. And uh, well, it's alarming, I may say, because of the amount of attempts or actual suicides that happen, that happen among our college students and younger students. What to, uh, how do we kind of, uh, I, I know a lot of colleges now are offering programs. I even saw one thing where uh, in Cornell University, they even training the dorm custodians mm-hmm. how to look for signs of the depression since they're around the students a lot. Mm-hmm. I guess a lot of the colleges are trying to do things, uh, pre- preventative things, uh, to help students coming into college for the first time to sort of offset some of these pressures that they might might have. We have to address it. We cannot ignore it. And so there are some universities that, like you said, are uh, educating and training staff and faculty about how to spot warning signs of mental distress. 
We also have some universities, for example, Paul Quinn College, they are actually giving students a mandatory course mm. on mental health to also alert them as to what are some warning signs, not only for themselves, but for their peers. Uh, sometimes students talk among themselves, and when they do, they admit feelings of sadness, depression, and even suicidal ideation. So to get students aware of that, there's a course that they are required to take, but most importantly, it also gives them information about resources available to them at that particular school. Well, and I know, I'm thinking about you in the psychology department. Uh, which probably would be a good resource for some of the students to, you know, because a lot of the, the professors in that department, uh, uh, some of them are probably trained uh, clinical uh, psychologists. Well, we, have a, we have a heavy uh, loading <laughs> of clinical psychologists at the Department of Psychology at Norfolk State. Uh, there are 10 of us mm. total, and of that 10, eight of us, our clinical psychologists. Okay, that's, that's great because we think of the, the professors are there and, and to do what they do is, is teach or right. share information, but to have that extra uh, certification uh, added with you it has to be a tremendous um, advantage uh, for colleges. It's an advantage, but, it's, they also, take advantage of it. but it's also a two-edged sword because mm. it places a heavy burden on faculty who are teaching students. Uh, the students feel comfortable with us and they tend to come to us and right. tell us about the things that are problematic for them. But um, our ethics call for us to have one relationship with a student at a time. So if I'm your professor, I cannot be your therapist. Right. And so we have to refer them. Sometimes we walk them over to the counseling center and there they can receive services or there's a referral made outside of campus. But having that professor that knows the signs and know where to refer those, those students is definitely advantage yes. and something that all the professors might not possess exactly. as far as that. Exactly. So what are some of the warning signs as far as college students that we can look for? Uh, well, we can tell parents some of those warning signs, like you said, start even before they get there. Uh, what are some of the warning signs that uh, maybe fellow students can look for? You know, Because a lot of, a lot of times when you get to college, you perform this little uh, click, yes. <laughs> and, which is a good thing because right. they're the people that you usually confide in if it's right. a problem. So, those people in that group, what are some of the warning signs they can look for so in I'll, their fellow students? I'll start with that because one of the signs that we look for sometimes is isolation. Mm. So a student may have found a little clique or a group that they like, but if you find them not wanting to go to dinner uh, with the group, or if you find them not wanting to go to the party on Friday night and they just rather stay in their room to themselves, that's a sign, the isolation, a change in the mood. And the younger the child, it may not be really identified as sadness, but rather it might be identified as an irritability. So these students seem to be easily annoyed. Uh, things get on their nerves really easily. Of course, there is the sadness, the pervasive sadness. Sometimes there is anxiety. We sometimes look for disruption in some of their physical um, what's physical for them. So these students may have some insomnia or on the other hand, they may sleep all the time. They may have a hypersomnia and they sleep a lot. There's sometimes a dysregulation in their eating, 
either they don't have an appetite or they may eat too much. So we just look for changes that seem to be extreme um, as some of the warning signs. Um, actually saying, I wish I wasn't here mm. or I feel like I want to hurt myself. Those are things that are we look back in retrospect and many times students have given us signs. Yeah, obvious, obvious uh, yeah. signs. In retrospect, know. yeah. And, and, and even sometimes those obvious signs we tend to overlook. Right. But the more we have uh, programs like this and programs that you all have at Norfolk State uh, yes. and, and in the community, you say you go, to, go out in the community and share information on mental health in general. Yes. You know, the more we are educated towards this, the more we are able to pick up some of those signs that are subtle or in your face. Or in your face, <laughs> exactly. And we need that. So uh, what are some of the things that we can do to, uh, if we're a college student, that we can do uh, or, or being done to help some of these college students as far as, we say, referrals or some of the things they can practice to make sure? So psychoeducation, and that is when you know, you know, when you know better, you do better. And so um, we try to provide those types of educational groups that tell people, when are these signs serious? Because we all feel, if you just use depression as an example, we all feel blue from time to time. We feel sad. And many times it is situational. It's linked to something, a breakup in a relationship, not doing well in a class. Your uh, team losing like Dallas. Your team. <laughs> I, I can't speak to that. I can't speak to that. But your team losing. There are so many. And, and actually, living in society, like it is today. There are many stressors that just come with our everyday life. And so knowing when those symptoms are so problematic that you need intervention. And typically we use as a general rule of thumb that when the depression or the mental distress interferes with the person's ability to live their lives. So if they can't go to class, they're so down, there's so lack of energy, they can't go to class, they can't go to work. Um, we then say something needs to happen. And one of the easiest things to do, easiest but hard, I thought about this on the way over here this morning. It's simple, but it's complicated. We just need to talk to each other. And many people believe that if you bring up the idea of suicide, you're going to put something in somebody's head you're going to plan an idea that they weren't thinking about. But most of the time, it's a relief for somebody who's feeling that way, for somebody to ask them. Questions like, what have you thought about hurting yourself? You know, um, if you thought about hurting yourself, do you have a plan? Those are all the kinds of things that help us to understand the intensity of somebody's suicidal thoughts. And I think some of the things, too, when you go to college, come from high school, some of those habits we might have had in high school that we were participating in sports or something like that. We get to college, you no longer do like exercise. And one of the hardest things in college to keep up with is, is sleep. <laughs> you know, we're studying and then, uh, well, you got the partying and then just hanging out. And that's one of the things that can, you know, as simple as that, that can bring on lack of sleep, lack of, sleep. Lack of exercise, diet, all these things, all can, these things. can contribute to Depression. People think depression comes from some, like you mentioned, breakup or some mm -hmm. uh, tragedy in your life, but it can come from a lot of different areas. Combination of Combination things. Combination of things. Um, there is depression that is based on 
our physiology. Mm -hmm. So there are some people with hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. There are some people who have those chemicals at the brain, neurotransmitters. Those things all firing differently. And it can be affected by lack of sleep. There's a body of literature coming out now looking at foods that you can eat to aid with depression. So there's certain things that you could eat that would help the regulation of your body chemistry and make you less depressed. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> I'll be happy to send it to you. Yeah, yeah. please do. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I saw something now that sort of surprised me uh, in looking up this. Um, I, I know it's always physically you have to know your um, family history and things, but I saw something mentioned in about as far as mental health or suicide that your family, if your family has a history of depression yes. or, or, or people in your family have committed suicide, that could be something that could uh, trigger something in you. It is a high risk. Yeah. When we look I, at risk factors. I just thought that applied to physiology, physical, uh, your physical being, right. you know, because it, it's linked with your genes or something like that. But it could also be as far as mental health and, and suicide tendencies. Yes, because wow. we know that there is depression that is considered genetic. Mm -hmm. So there are some families that depression runs in the family. But usually, not only do we um, have that genetic background with and share with our family, we also share space with our family. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we children model what they see. And so if someone in the family has made a suicide attempt or they have actually suicided, Students, young children may see that and they may copy it. So it's genetic, but it's also environment. It's the nature-nurture debate. So uh, it's a combination of things with the family because typically those people that we're related to, we live with. So we see what they do and we will sometimes do that. Adaptive good behaviors, positive behaviors, but also maladaptive behaviors as well. Wow. And, uh, and I want to go away from the college and get to the elementary and work your way up to the teenagers. But before we leave there, I think one of the important things to mention, especially college students and freshmen, how important it is to, for families to keep that connection. Yes. You know, don't just send them off to college that first year and there's no communication. Yes. Continue that same type of uh, communication you had at home. And if you didn't have it at home, it's more important that you have it. That you keep doing that, that connection. Especially during that freshman year, maybe throughout the four years, but especially important during those four. I mean, that freshman year. So. I can I can speak to that personally. Mm -hmm. I sent my daughter to Atlanta mm -hmm. from here for college, and there was one instance where I said I got to put my eyes on her, mm -hmm. and so I went down to Atlanta one weekend and spent the weekend with her because it was, as you said, the stress of and the demands of trying to keep your grades up not wanting to disappoint people. She was very, very stressed. And so it worked out, but you're right. You sometimes have to keep that connection. And sometimes you have to keep that connection even stronger than when you're seeing them every day and they just go to their room. They're many miles away often. Sometimes they're close, but you, right. you just need to make sure that you're checking in. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of students that live right here mm -hmm. and uh, stay on campus in Norfolk State. Exactly. And, you Gotta know, that's just, they just um, some might be in walking distance, but still keeping that connection. Keeping that connection. And uh, but before I go on, I'd like to welcome our Facebook listeners. And I see it's a question there that someone had. Uh, that Benita Gilliam had mm -hmm. concerning stigma. 
the stigma, and she just wanted to know if the stigma stigma in the communities is uh, has it changed. We're still working on that. We're That's still, still working work on it. It has changed because mm-hmm. even That's when we look at help seeking behavior, more people are going to therapists now. More people are seeking help, which suggests to us that the stigma has lessened. Right. But there's still a people. Especially we're talking about African American. Especially in the African American. We weren't getting the help exactly. as much as other communities. Right, and we weren't getting it from the resources. We would go to church right. and we would try to pray, pray away. away but, um, but now pray is good, but but there but but God created, God created. clinicians. <laughs> he created doctors right. um, to assist us with this. So that's an excellent question about the stigma. This past weekend, many people participated in the Morning of Hope, mm-hmm. and that's the community walk for to, to educate people about mental illness and to promote mental health. And so we have more events like that, and people are participating in that. And with education, there is less stigma. Mm-hmm because there's less, there's more understanding about where depression, where anxiety, and just mental illness in general, where it comes from. There's less blame. And just taking the perceived shame out of it. Exactly. You know, there's no shame in what, you know, in getting help with those kind of things. Exactly. So let's go to the elementary. Uh, I think when we talked in the past, I was always surprised at uh, the numbers of children in the, at the elementary education level who have issues that take them down that route, you know, a su- suicidal behavior and actually committing suicide, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and I guess those signs can be overlooked too because their kids and parents say, oh, you know, they, they just talk, you know. Right. You know, they're just going through a phase or something like that. Well, right. it could be something really serious that they need to pay attention to. As early as, yeah, as early as, go ahead. As early as age three. Wow. The research tells us that children don't know the word suicide, but they do know what it means to kill yourself. Mm. And so they have an understanding, and they say when they talk to these children, these children have said that they've learned about it from listening to adults talk, watching television. There are a lot, I think there was a TV show about 13 ways um something like that and this young woman committed suicide um and so we have to monitor what our children are hearing what they are seeing and what we're talking about and realize um, that they them. take things literally that and, we might be just saying you know oh i feel like killing myself mm-hmm. you know you know it's my on my job today because it was so hard and they just take it literally they so, take oh, it literally maybe that's a way out now Many of the times with children, um, suicide is a result of some impulsive behavior. They really did not intend to kill themselves, but it just got out of hand. So they may engage in um, playing with a firearm, and then it goes off. Um, They may, and um, for children very early um, in life, um, they are mostly seeking attention, but sometimes they use too strong a method of getting attention and it results in their death and that's important so what are some of the things we need to do or parents need to look for in those younger age children like you said starting at three mm-hmm. up. Uh, you know we pay attention but what are some of the things we really need to not overlook right 
So it's that sad, right, and it's not very different. It may um, be demonstrated differently in younger children because they don't often have the language to be able to communicate, I feel sad or I feel like I don't want to be here. But we look at some of the same behaviors. If these t children tend to be less sociable, if they isolate, they stay to themselves. If they look sad, if they seem sad, if they can articulate for you that they are sad. And many art therapists with children will use drawings or will use therapeutic play. And so if the themes emerge from that, in terms of sadness or hopelessness, then those are some warning signs. Again, we should talk to our children as young as they are, but use the language that they can understand to investigate whether or not they feel like they'd rather, if, if life would be better for them if they weren't here. Make them, you know, appreciate life, <laughs> you know, to the fullest. So now let's go to uh, teenagers, and, and I look at teenagers, they are the most uh, at risk because when you get at that teenage age, I mean, it's very confusing. You know, we've all been there as, as teenagers and, and know those growing pains, and they're not always growing physical pains, but they're growing mental pains that you yes. have and trying to fit in or not fit in or, or, or just trying to break away from parents not being a you know a, a mama's boy or something like that so all these things are going on so they that puts them more at risk for all these suicidal behaviors it does even attempts it does so um we know what's happening one of the things that's happening during adolescence teenagers is that there's all these hormonal changes mm. the pituitary is going crazy firing hormones that make us grow that make us feel certain ways um and so that's the first thing. Then there are the demands of school. Academics today is a very different animal than it was. Students are trying, are working as early as seventh, eighth grade for college, uh, choosing the college that they want and, and hoping that they get admitted and engaged in extracurricular activities like cheerleading, like sports. Well, cheerleading is a sport, my daughter informed me. <laughs> but like sports, uh, they're doing um, debates. They're doing all of the kinds of things that they're taking music lessons. They're doing dance. And it just takes a toll on us physically and mentally. And so students have those types of demands. And then there's this whole new area of bullying that can happen by way of technology. Right. Now, when I was growing up, you could get bullied at school, you might fight on the playground, and then it was done. But the kinds of bullying that happens today is a lot more pervasive. It can be recorded. Thousands and thousands of people can see it. Students feel a lot of humiliation and embarrassment because of it. And relationships have changed very much as well partly because of the uh, technology in that we don't have the social supports we used to have. Students prefer now to communicate by text than they do in talk, instead of talking to each other. But we also look at um, romantic relationships. Students are getting involved in romantic relationships earlier and earlier, and they really don't have the social or the mental strength to deal with some of these, these issues. And, and I'm more into you than you're into me. And, 
and then they see that as the all-in if right. it doesn't work out. Devastating. Not knowing that their life is well, just life beyond. Right, there's life beyond this. Beyond that. But it's really hard sometimes, and all of those things combined will sometimes be the thing that tips adolescents over the edge. And so what, what, how, what do we do? How do we deal with that? Because that's a whole... Well, it's similar to, to dealing with the college and the uh, younger kids, but it, it, it seems like to be a, a whole different kind of area trying to trying to deal with them, you know, to, to impress upon them, especially as adults, because sometimes at that age they look at us like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Exactly, you know, exactly. Um, this I know what I'm talking about. How do we get to them or get that message over to them that, uh, you know, uh, their life is worth something and it's not worth Taking yourself out you know, for some any reason. This is a really complicated issue, and it's one that a lot of people are discussing, um, but still, it's a struggle. One of the issues is that the many entities, the many entities that children are involved with, often don't connect or speak with each other. So a student may be behaving one way in class. But that information might not get relayed to the parent. The parent may see them at home in a certain way, but does that information always get relayed to their doctor? Does that information always get, um, do they have a therapist, which it might be important for them to have? Does that information get conveyed? And then if there is a therapist, is that therapist communicating with the teacher? The teach? And sometimes there are some boundaries, release of information boundaries, that prevent us from being able to have one picture of a student that's comprehensive in nature, but very necessary. So we have to try to find ways, and typically the parent is gonna be the key, is gonna be the hub to make sure that all of those entities are connected and one knows what the other is doing. Sometimes a student's first help is their medical doctor. Pediatricians are very well versed in how sometimes behaviors reflect psychological issues and then they can make the necessary referrals. But you would hope that they would consider the referrals to maybe a clinician, a social worker, a counselor before they medicate. Because sometimes it's really easy to just have them pop a pill. And while the pill will help them deal with the symptoms, right, help them deal with the symptoms, the root cause will continue to be there unless it's dealt with. And as a psychologist, I believe that a big part of that has to happen with one-on-one uh, therapy, counseling. Um, again, I'm uh, a person of faith, and I think it is important for us to um, empower our children also with the relationship with the higher power from God that can also help them in times of distress. Yeah, and just like you said all that, and, and during our times coming up, you mentioned about the parents, and maybe one of the issues, and parents need to be aware of this, you said that the child might be acting out of school and not doing the same thing. That's why I saw often the parents going, they're not, not my child. Right. But, you know, during, during our day, the parent came up there and automatically believed the teacher or whatever that authority mm -hmm. said mm -hmm. over the child. And, and it's different now. It so is. parents have to take that under consideration, you mm -hmm. know, when they look at that, you know, look at the whole child. He might be one way at home and another way at school. Exactly. So, 
your professionals are telling you you need to look out for you need to listen mm-hmm. and unfortunately <laughs> I have to say also that teachers have changed mm. from a long time ago and so sometimes we need to talk to our children about what's happening in the classroom mm-hmm. because there are instances documented where teachers have done things to students said things to students had experiences with students that have not been good for their self-esteem okay. well uh the time has gone on and as usual fast. yes usual uh the conversations the discussions we have are so important and so intriguing and it's always more to discuss and We'll continue to have you back. Thank you, Dr. Ernestine Duncan.